Welcome to the UM's Connected Podcast, a resource offering spiritual formation in the Wesleyan tradition through a metaverse community. I'm your host, Steve Harper. Well, we move into the second episode in the last segment of our foundational series of podcasts, which we began a little over two months ago. We're looking at the formational flow of Wesleyan formation in community. We started with belonging, and we took the word connection as a way of not only emphasizing Wesley's understanding of the early Methodist movement as a connection, but our understanding of the same idea in UM's Connected Today. We looked at the significance of belonging and how it served as a doorway into discovery. Then we moved into a series of episodes on believing. When you moved into the Methodist house, uh, it was a table well set with nourishing food, uh, substantial beliefs in uh, mediated to us through scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So we, we spent some time looking at part three of the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church to say that same sumptuous fare, that same formative uh, content is who we are today. And we use that as a reminder uh, that when we want to know what we believe as United Methodists, we don't look at individual opinions that vary from person to person. We go to the Book of Discipline and we say, this is who we are. And uh, people who decide to stay with us or disaffiliate from us do so in relationship not to what they've heard or the rumors they've picked up or the misinformation they've been given, but in relationship to what we actually say about ourselves. So then last week, we moved on to the third phase of this foundational series, and that is behaving. If we belong and believe in the Wesleyan spirit, we'll behave. Wesley called it living faith. Eugene Peterson and others more recently have called it lived theology. In fact, there's a whole group of scholars uh, based at the University of Virginia who keep working on, on how theology becomes incarnate in the kind of world that we live in today. So, I'm using Richard Foster's spiritual formation paradigm to describe the aspect of living faith because it's a formative paradigm. Uh, In uh, his writings, he talks about uh, vision, intention, and means. Last week, we began this living segment uh, by looking at the vision. Um, We begin with vision because it not only inspires us, but it directs us. It, It begins to point us in the direction that we are supposed to go. And so we said... Uh, quite a number of things last week about uh, our vision, not only in early Methodism, but in United Methodism today, and in particular in the United Methodist movement we're calling UM's Connected. Now, we move on to intention today. Intention is our vision enacted. It's sometimes called mission. Maybe you've seen a paradigm of vision, mission, action. We're talking about intention. I'm calling it that because it's actually more of an historical word. Uh, The Wesleys talked about intentionality. 
their theology was intentional. It's rooted in the will. Dallas Willard in our day has written and gifted the church with a lot of insights about the place of intention. That's where we are today in this segment of the podcast. Let's begin by looking at how this played out in early Methodism, and then we'll move over into expressing that same kind of intention today. Intention is always lived out on two levels, personally and collectively. And the two are joined together. They're not separate. In fact, if you try to have personal intention and you don't link it with anybody else, then you turn into a kind of privatized spirituality, kind of me and Jesus spirituality that may do you a lot of good or me a lot of good, but it doesn't really go very far beyond us. Nevertheless, we want to talk about personal intention because collective intention without the personal doesn't really have any fire in the furnace. It, it, It doesn't really have any energy to it because the people who gather together are not there for any uh, particular reason other than, uh, you know, you're just supposed to go to church on Sunday or whatever it is. <clears throat> Formation in the Wesleyan tradition, you see, is this heartbeat, this lub-dub of personal intention expressed collectively. We see that in the early Methodist movement itself. Let's begin with personal intention. I discovered it when I uh, was uh, guided by Dr. Frank Baker and uh, others, to study Wesley's letters. I remember one of my doctoral faculty mentors, Dr. Jill Rate, who was a Roman Catholic. Um, We were talking one day in one of the classes, and she said to me, if you want to know a person's spirituality, read their letters. And that opened me to, uh, to an entire world of the devotional classics that have come to us by way of letters. Now, there's some obvious reasons for that culturally. Uh, we're, We're in danger of losing the art of letter writing in our day, an art that people who preceded us in faith understood and practiced. Uh, We might, on a best day, we might roughly equate it with the way we email back and forth to each other or uh, talk to one another on social media. But even then, it's not exactly the same as letter writing and the both physical, mental, and spiritual dynamics that are tied to that writing process. We could talk a lot about that, but I'll just simply say that Jill Rate was right. Dr. Frank Baker was correct. If we want to understand personal intention, not only John Wesley's and uh, the others who wrote letters, But if we want to understand the personal intention that we're supposed to have, we look at Wesley's letters. Because it's there that he speaks most directly to individuals, to people he had met, to people that he knew, to to people that were co-leading with him in uh, the early Methodist movement. This is where you get down to street level. This is where you get down to the individual level. And, it, and it's, it's wonderful to read Wesley's letters. This is where we see him as pastor, I think, uh, most clearly. Uh, this is when he is responding to questions that people have uh, asked of him in previous letters. This is where he is sending counsel as they, as they live out their lives, not only as general disciples of Jesus Christ, 
but in some cases as class leaders and and uh, other influencers in their church and in their community. Um, the bicentennial edition of Wesley's works, which has been co-published over the years by Oxford University Press and Abingdon Press, is a is a wonderful place to go to to study um, the writings of Wesley. Um, there will be thirty four volumes, I think, when the whole series is complete. But we're fortunate to have the volumes of letters that began in seventeen twenty one. And the volume now <clears throat> takes us through 1765. We've got another volume to go uh, to get the, the, the letters in the last uh, 25 years of Wesley's life. I bring that up today for two reasons. One, I just want you to know about the works of John Wesley in the Bicentennial Edition. Uh, you, can, you can go to the website for Abingdon Press and you can find all the existing volumes there and um, choose the ones that are of most interest to you. And I hope some of you will do that. You may be fortunate enough in your local church library uh, to have uh, that series. Um, it's it's uh, still not as widespread as it needs to be because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like mining gold. Uh, it's just a wonderful set of Wesley's works uh, that have come out since about 1984 four or so, maybe even a little earlier than that. Anyway, I'm rambling a bit. What I wanted to, to say that if you can get your hands on the first volume, it's actually volume 25 of this bicentennial edition of Wesley's works. Um, Dr. Frank Baker, who uh, I was blessed to have as my doctoral mentor at Duke University, writes uh, a wonderful introduction to the letters of John Wesley. Uh, he talks about the people that, uh, to whom Wesley wrote. He, uh, he talks about the subjects that uh, Wesley covered most often. Um, it's a way of uh, getting a panoramic look at Wesley's letters before you begin to read them individually. And uh, so again, volume 25 of the works of Wesley in the Bicentennial Edition. But it's, it's in that experience... Uh, not just of reading Wesley's letters, but others as well. The letters of Francois Fenelon, for example, or, or others. Uh, the letters of Thomas Merton I found to be fascinating. Uh, Dorothy Day's letters. Um, thank God for the people who not only received the letters and benefited from them, but from the people who, 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 who uh, kept them, preserved them, and, and offered them when, when people were ready to produce volumes like this. What do we learn? Well, what we learn from the letters is that each of us, in our creation by God, is, is given a soul print. You look at your hands and you see fingerprints. But we also have a soul print. Uh, there is something unique and unrepeatable about our life. And in our life and through our life, what we then can contribute uh, for the good of others. I'm going to say more about that when I update the rest of this episode and bring it into the present. But there's that personal, uh, unique, unrepeatable feature. Sometimes we get lost in the crowd, don't we? We Maybe even we go to church and we sit in pews and we look at the backs of people's heads or we look up and down the rows and it just looks like this conglomeration of 
of people, some whom we know, some whom we don't know, some we see, some maybe we never see again. And it's it just this, this mass of uh, people. But intention, as we're talking about it today, is, is not lost in the crowd. Uh, it's not nameless and faceless. Uh, it, it is unique uh, as each one of us has the opportunity in our creation to put our soul print on life. That's what we see in the, in the early Methodist movement as John Wesley wrote to women, to men, to old people, to, to younger people. Uh, he wrote to people according to their trade, a letter to a sea captain, a letter to a shop owner, and, and showing how each of those people had the opportunity to do something important and distinctive in their discipleship. We want to think that same way when we talk about living intentionally. Then, of course, in early Methodism, there's the collective intent. John Wesley certainly understood that in the Methodist connection, which we talked about in the first part of this podcast series. Uh, A couple of months ago, we unpacked the word connection, showing why it's so important. And then woven into that, the annual conferencing that Wesley did, calling the leaders of the Methodist movement together about what to teach, how to teach, what to do, uh, through the collective intent, you see. It's not just what are you going to be doing over there, what are you going to be doing over here, what's he doing, what's she doing. Again, that's sacred and holy ground, don't misunderstand me. But even when we talk about uh, the individual value that we bring to our lives in the kingdom of God, we also then talk about how we bring our individual value to bear in the, in the, uh, in the society, in the church, in the community. And so what, what, what emerged from these, uh, these kind of gatherings was a reignition of the spirit. Have you ever gone to a meeting and you're feeling kind of down, uh, just kind of tired, maybe even almost fed up with the whole thing. And you go to a meeting and you see somebody there who's just on fire with the thing that you feel pretty cold about. Meetings can reignite the spirit, the collective nature of our intent. Um, Even if I'm not feeling it, the great thing about coming together, somebody else probably is. And uh, they can offer me a, cup of cold water when I'm spiritually thirsty. So this collective nature of intent is very important because it ignites the spirit of a movement. It says not what do we do individually here and there and now and then. It says what, what, what are we doing day after day, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. What, what course are we staying? What journey are we continuing on no matter what? And then, of course, the collective nature of intention informed the substance of the movement because out of the minutes of the annual conferences, for example, uh, that are also in this bicentennial edition of Wesley's works, in the, in the minutes of the annual conferences, uh, people all over the connection could get ideas that they might not have ever had before. Uh, those minutes were read and studied and, and then the people in, in their various locations says, how, how would we put this into practice? What would that look like here, see, they, they were getting ideas from the larger group. And then they were also getting resources because some of the things that, that they talked about in their conferencing led to particular 
ways and means for doing things. We're going to look at uh, that aspect of living faith next week when we talk about the means for living our faith. So, living with intention in the early Methodist movement was personal and collective, and it is today as well. So let's begin with the personal intent that we bring to our discipleship in general, to our participation as Christ followers in the Wesleyan tradition more in particular. We start with the human spirit. Uh, the longer that, that I probe these kinds of things, the more drawn I am to the first creation story where we get the opportunity in that story and in the second story, the first two chapters of Genesis, we get the opportunity to see what God intended and how God made things and what we call in theology original righteousness, what Matthew Fox calls original blessing, what the Genesis writer called over and over again, good, it was good, it was good, it was good. So we see in the first chapter, that first creation story, the creation of human beings in the image of God uh, as being good, good, good. When we talk about living with intention, uh, we're not talking selfishly, but we're talking sacredly when we say, start with yourself. Start with yourself. I'm not talking about pride. I'm not saying make yourself the center of the universe. What I'm saying is, don't, don't get outside of yourself too quickly, see? One of the great dangers of the spiritual life is that we die by comparing ourselves with other people. There's a, there's a Jewish story that says Moshe died and uh, went to heaven and was approaching the throne of God and he saw God weeping. And Moshe said to himself, I knew it, I knew it, I knew that, that I should have been better than I am. I knew that I should have been more like other people. And when, when Moshe got within uh, speaking distance, God speaks back and says, oh no, Moshe. I'm not weeping because you were not somebody else. I'm weeping for the times you were not Moshi. Oh, my goodness. If that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what will. Start with yourself because, as, as the psalmist says, you are sacredly and marvelously made. So we, we in our living with intent, we, we, we talk about gender. And we talk about our identity. We talk about our orientation. We talk about our personality types, our talents. We talk about our location. Because where we live uh, is influential to, to bring out who we are. And then, of course, we do talk vocationally. And how when we, when we get up and we live our life every single day, how do we live it to the glory of God? We start, dear ones, personally, we start with our own life. And we do what Paul says, that we offer it to God as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1. This is our spiritual worship, Paul says. This is our reasonable service. In fact, the Greek word is, means both that, that, that you, you, you can't separate out worship from service or service from worship. It all flows together. We live with intent personally through the human spirit. And then, of course, we live with intention through the Holy Spirit because the Bible teaches us that we're given gifts by the Spirit. And through those gifts and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we bear fruit. 
So you see the gifts of the Holy Spirit in uh, Corinthians and Romans and um, a little bit in the book of Ephesians. And then you see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. This is how we live with intention through the human spirit and the Holy Spirit. Then we also live with intention today collectively. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it life together. And you can read his devotional classic and learn so much about collective intent. It has a day uh, apart. It has a day away. It has time when they're together, time when they're, they're not together. It's a beautiful understanding of collective formation, collective intent. Um, two things I want to mention today in this podcast is that uh, the uh, collective nature of our intent enables us to experience focused engagement. You see, if you bring these elements that I've talked about today in your human spirit through the Holy Spirit, if you bring your gender identity, orientation, personality type, talents, location, vocation, gifts, fruits, and, and, and other aspects of human existence, if you bring all that together, then you know, to use the body of Christ imagery, you know that you're an eye, not an ear. Uh, you know that you're a hand, not a foot. You know where to fit in. Do you see what I'm saying? If, if you're really in touch with your personal intention, uh, that you're sacredly and marvelously made by God, then you know where to, to invest yourself in the work of the church as the body of Christ. Ah, but there's one more thing you also experience a freeing detachment. You don't have to be there every time the doors are open. You don't have to be involved in every good thing that comes along. Years ago, decades ago now actually, Richard Foster and I were having a conversation at an Arby's restaurant, believe it or not, and over a, an Arby's roast beef sandwich, Richard said one of the great moments in his spiritual formation was when he realized that there were more good things that need to be done than God was asking Richard to do. And he illustrated that from some experiences out of his own life. More good things to be done than God is asking you to do. One of the tricks of Satan is to get you overwhelmed so that you end up living a half an inch deep and five miles wide. And uh, you just kind of make a dribbling impact. No. Focused engagement, see. You know who you are in God and you offer that to God in collective life together. And that frees you then to say a divine no as well as a divine yes. Now let me be very clear. There are some things we all do generally. You don't have to say, well, that's not my gift. I'm sorry, that's just not in my, my gift portfolio. That's, that's just kind of spiritual pride. There's some things we do. It needs cleaning, you clean it up. It needs washing, you wash it up. It needs, you know, you need somebody to put food in a sack, you put it in there. there there's stuff that we, that, that, that we do just because it needs doing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that freedom to be directed by the Holy Spirit into our work rather than driven. The Holy Spirit is a shepherd. The Holy Spirit guides us. It doesn't drive us. Um, Richard Foster that night that we were visiting told me, about Thomas Kelly's book, A Testament of Devotion, uh, that had been so liberating for him. Because in that book, Thomas Kelly says it, God doesn't ask you to die on every cross you see. Aha. But then you put it with Fanny Crosby. But there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. So it's that combination of Thomas Kelly and Fanny Crosby. That's where you get it. 
That's where intent comes together collectively. That's where we learn how to experience life together. Well, that's our episode for today. It's jam-packed, just like most of them are. But we've, we've talked today about how you take a vision and let it ignite your will. How you take a vision and turn it into energy. I hope you found this session helpful. I hope you'll listen again next week and tell others about this podcast series and about UM's Connected so that we can be on this journey together.